0: Hello and welcome to The Overtake. I'm your host, John Bazella, President and CEO of the Alliance for Automotive Innovation. This podcast is about the automotive industry and the people, events, and policies that shape it. In our ongoing series about economic development and the automotive industry, we have spoken with Carla Bello of the Center for Automotive Research about the economic and national security implications of automotive manufacturing and Mark Brazil of Mazda Toyota Manufacturing about what it took to bring their new facility in Huntsville, Alabama from concept to reality. In both conversations, we heard about a transformation in automotive manufacturing and innovation. What are the implications for companies and people producing our vehicles? What kinds of investments are we seeing in the industry as a result? what are the global consequences as the U.S. competes with other international powers? These are some of the questions we will consider with our accomplished guest today. Joining us is Kristen Jijic, an automotive policy advisor in the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago's Economic Research Department. In this role, Kristen develops a research agenda to understand the various impacts of vehicle electrification and automation on the auto industry, supply chains, auto communities, and auto workers. Her work involves communicating research findings to policymakers, industry leaders, and the public. Kristen, welcome to The Overtake.
1: Thank you for having me, John.
0: So before we get into it, Sort of the dynamics of the auto industry, it might be a good, good to start with sort of what the Federal Reserve does. I think people certainly understand the rate setting, the interest rate setting aspect of the Fed. But what is an economist like you and an engineer like you doing at the Fed?
1: Well, I joined the Federal Reserve earlier this year. My role is a policy advisor. I came to this from being the Senior Vice President of Research at the Center for Automotive Research. I've worked in and around automotive manufacturing and policy for my entire career, including working with the Manufacturing Extension Program, the federal government, the UAW, Chrysler, General Motors. I do want to say first that the comments I'm going to make here today are mine alone, not those of the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago, the Board of Governors, Chairman Powell, I'm speaking just for me. But the Federal Reserve, uh, it's in the news a lot lately. And a lot of people who are in my friend circle are like, I don't remember ever hearing about the Fed all that often until you went to work there. I'm like, yeah, well, I, I changed things, sure. The Federal Reserve System is here to foster a strong economy and have stable financial systems. And There's 12 regional banks. The Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago is one. It's located in, obviously, Illinois. It represents and serves Iowa, Illinois, Indiana, most of Michigan, and Wisconsin. And each of these banks contribute to formulating the nation's monetary policy or setting interest rates. And they also oversee and manage the safety and security and functioning of our banking system and provide depository services to institutions and and the government. So when I'm in the office in Detroit, there are trucks coming in with money and trucks going out with money to banks all around our region. So there's that sort of production aspect of what we do. But really fundamentally, in order to make those decisions about the, the interest rates and the oversight of the economy, we have to understand the economy. And this is really an organization that's very focused on making evidence-based decisions. And we have models of the economy, we build those models based on an understanding of the sectoral dynamics, the data, and boy do we have a lot of data, <laughs> and importantly listening to all the participants in the economy. And that listening takes a lot of different forms, but it allows us to have the perspective of not only how current economic conditions are playing out for people, but as well as forecasting future trends. and. Auto is a really big deal in the U.S. economy, and especially here in the 7th District. The Fed recognized that this transformation to low-carbon and automated transportation is a a once-in-a-lifetime kind of thing that's going to have far-reaching economic impacts here in the upper Midwest and throughout the country. So I'm not the only auto person at the Fed, but my position was really created to solely focus on how EVs and AVs are changing our economy, our communities, and our lives.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating, and I want to get into that. I mean, it does indicate the significant economic impact of the industry, right, that 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 your role exists. But before we dig into that, so so you're listening, you've got data, I recognize these are your views, but it, can you give us a little bit of general perspective, what you're seeing in the Midwest and what your viewpoint is on the economy right now?
1: Well, this is a very strange economy right now with this very tight labor market. And prices are, are just too high. The inflation is much, much too high. And at the Federal Reserve, the interest rate is a blunt tool. The managing the balance sheet is also a blunt tool. And this is an economy unlike one I've, I've seen in my career. We're not talking about, is there enough demand out there? We're talking about, can we supply the demand there is? Yeah. Especially in new vehicles, the pent-up demand that's out there for retail customers and for fleet customers, it might be two or three million vehicles that we haven't been able to build. I know I'm waiting on a vehicle right now that I ordered almost nine months ago. So it's a really very strange situation. And when we forecast sales for the U.S., light vehicle sales, the factors are, you know, how wealthy are our households. Do they have enough money? What does income look like? What's unemployment look like? What's housing starts look like? And all of those fundamental factors are pretty good for there being this solid demand. And we don't have supply side factors in those models generally. Like, can you actually make what they need? So these supply constraints are really making it a very upside down and kind of goofy economy.
0: Yeah, I would certainly agree with you that the auto industry is an exemplar of that, right? We cannot meet demand.
1: Well, and we have some other sort of paradoxes too, like people's savings rates are very high. We have fairly low default rates, and we're in the, the situation where individual households feel like they're doing okay, but they feel bad about the overall economy. So I'm okay, but I really feel bad that the whole economy is not good. So if everybody feels good, but they feel bad about the general economy, then that's can be a self-fulfilling prophecy.
0: Interesting. I want to come back to your phrase, the transformation of the auto industry, more electrified propulsion, more automated and advanced safety technology, even changing ownership models, perhaps. So let's dig a little bit deeper into that. What does that look like from your perspective? And where are we (laughs) in that transformation are we at the very beginning of it do you think or are we more midway through it what's your assessment of that transformation and where are we in the journey
1: well this is an industry that's always changing and some of the changes have not been all that transparent to people outside the industry but we've gone from really making regional products to making global products on much more consolidated vehicle architectures and just honing the supply chain dynamics to degrees that no other industry can do, and the auto industry brought the power of that supply chain to this pandemic it, early on. Of we made ventilators, <laughs> we made masks and PPE. You know, we could really harness that that global supply chain and do good things with it. So I think we're always changing, but we're right in the thick of this EV, AV and advanced safety transfer transformation. So I think we're right in the early, early middle and really everything is changing. The product itself, the processes we use to make it, the inputs, the names of the suppliers and the supply chains and the sources of those materials, the trade agreements that oversee that bringing those materials and parts and components here the use cases of the vehicles the markets how we buy the vehicle how we use it even how we pay for it and and the regulatory environment like everything is moving all at once and i think that's what's really different about this period in time it's not just oh we're moving from different types of steel or we're moving from having 15 platforms to having six this is really all of the things moving at once
0: Yeah. And so you've talked about some of the factors. I love the phrase use cases, right? I don't think people always apply it to personal transportation, but it does raise the question, what do you think is actually driving the transformation? Is it the opportunity for manufacturers to provide different use cases or expand mobility? Is it a desire to reduce emissions, increase safety? Is it all of the above? What's your sense about what's driving this transformation?
1: all of the above and different things are in the lead at different points in time right now it really feels like the EV transition isn't in the lead and in the front position and just a few years ago transportation emissions became the largest sector of greenhouse gas emissions in this country Uh, now 27% of all emissions and outstripping power power generation has been getting increasingly efficient and better and cleaner over time with lots of investment but now transportation is the big sore thumb. This is the main major source of greenhouse gas here. And companies are responding in part, I think, in response to regul- regulators and investors who are rewarding those who are disrupting this industry and moving toward low carbon solutions. And I think for many years, like going back like my early years at Car, we were doing things about electric vehicles. And it was kind of the field of dreams question if we build it will they come and consumers really are coming now i mean we're at over 12 percent electrified share including battery electric and hybrid and plug-in hybrid that share grew even in a down market during the pandemic that share grew even when gas prices weren't as high as they have been this year so all of the kelly blue book folks edmunds and folks like that that keep their finger on the pulse of what consumers are shopping for show that people are considering a hybrid or a plug-in hybrid or a battery electric vehicle for their next vehicle at an increasing rate. It's not just a response about gas prices. It's it's got to do with that overall moving to lower emissions t- transportation for personal transportation.
0: Yeah. And I think from the customer's perspective, I happen to drive a battery electric vehicle, I think it's a uh, fun to drive they're great vehicles.
1: We're also at that point and maybe right on the cusp of consumers don't want to compromise much.
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) Especially people who are in the market for a new vehicle. This is a big purchase. We're getting close to $50,000 as the average price. They want a vehicle that, that doesn't cost more and we're getting closer to parity between the two. They want a vehicle that has the utility that they have in the vehicle they have now. Most people are in a cross utility or a pickup truck. And so the automakers are responding by electrifying beyond the subcompact segment into all of the segments of vehicles. And they want convenience. They want to be able to use this vehicle the way they can use their internal combustion engine vehicle. Get up and go and not have to think about it too much, not have to plan in an extra hour and a half on a five-hour trip to stay on the side of the road and charge. So there's lots of ways to attack each one of those elements. But I think the industry is really responding by giving a lot of utility options to consumers. The infrastructure is coming and different approaches to charging 800 volts so we can charge faster and lots of other approaches to that convenience factor. And then the cost is the one that we have to work on.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. And I want to get into that. We've talked about the momentum in the market, the positives. When I look at sales of vehicles with plugs or hydrogen fuel cell vehicles, another type of electric vehicle. So putting the hybrids, the mild hybrids aside, so maybe it's 5.5% 5.5% of the market or whatever, which is good. But that means 95% of vehicle sales are internal combustion engines. But there's this enormous investment going on right, to make this shift. And I want to get into that a little bit. So there's obviously private sector investment. I've seen numbers like a half a trillion dollars of investment across the auto industry, broadly defined by mid-decade. We see maybe 130 individual electrified models in the marketplace with plugs or hydrogen by mid-decade up from maybe 75 to 80 now. What does that investment look like? A lot of it's private sector investment. Is there a public sector role here as well? How do you see, not so much individual investments, but when you look at this transformation from an investment perspective, what does that look like?
1: There are very few private investments that aren't met with some public support, in at least in the United States and Canada. These new technologies and new suppliers and new assembly plants or battery plants or semiconductor plants are held out as big prime economic development plums that states and communities are competing fiercely with each other to win. And the fundamentals of a deal have to be there. You have to have a site that's that makes sense logistics-wise, close to the suppliers, close to the market, close to where the product needs to be. It has to have a workforce and an ability to replicate the workforce and all kinds of other considerations that an investor or your company may be making when they place a site somewhere. But that public side of it, the tax incentives or training incentives or other considerations for offering free land or reduced utility rates or other kinds of components of the investment are, are pretty critical, and that sometimes is what tips the balance between two equal sites. There are states that want to have a stake in this new and burgeoning industry, and there are states that want to hold on to their share and potentially grow their share of this industry. So you think about the Michigan, Ohio, Indiana, kind of upper Midwest traditional industry, that this is where 75% of transmissions are made and over half of all engines for North American production. And we're going to be making fewer transmissions and engines. So these three states are really looking at how do we stay a part of this industry that has been so fundamental to our economy for so long.
0: Right. And fewer transmissions and engines, of course, because Electric vehicles don't need transmissions and engines. They have electric motors and they have batteries to store electricity. So let's talk about this competition, though. So states are competing with one another. Part of that competition is to provide some type of incentive. So why? I mean, what's the return for a state to provide support for that investment?
1: Well, in the end, it can be sort of a zero-sum game for a country, right? Right. Our federal government doesn't get involved in whether a plant is located in Michigan or Tennessee or California or anywhere like that. But states do care where those locations are, and so they are competing against each other. And there's only so many deals to be had, and there's only so much money in each one of these states' coffers to do these sorts of investments and and incentivize these investments and deals. So they're not going to win them all. They're going to win hopefully the ones that make sense for their region but what i wanted to contrast is canada really only has one province that has their auto industry the canadian federal government and the province of ontario are very aggressively courting electric vehicle investments together and so that's the other dynamic i think here is that investments that could go to a state in the United States could also go to Canada where their federal government is putting money into those incentives.
0: That's where I wanted to go to next. So I I think it's fairly obvious to me. So, you know, if there's a battle between say Tennessee and Georgia or Tennessee and Indiana, the value proposition for the government in Tennessee is look, I'm going to provide some incentive, but I'm going to get jobs and tax revenue and support for school districts and the building of a innovation and the building of a core automotive community where sort of there's economic activity. So, but there is an international competition as well, isn't there? Right. And that seems to me at least to matter more and more than it used to, to your point about Canada. Right. So let's talk a little bit more about that. I, I, used to think about the auto industry as purely global and capital flowed where it needed to flow to produce a very efficient supply chain and automotive manufacturing system. It's a little different today, maybe. Would you agree? There seems to be more of a competitive dynamic between countries than there was or not?
1: I think there is more of a competitive dynamic. And I think there's also, we're in this period of, we talked earlier about the supply chain constraints that we're in. Just a massive reevaluation and rethinking of the risks involved in a global supply chain. And to be fair, there's risks if your supplier is across the street and has a fire or tornado. These kinds of risks can happen. But these long global supply chains proved particularly fragile in parts of this pandemic. We had just in the second quarter the China COVID shutdowns. Really, you didn't see many headlines about it here, but that was causing a lot of people to scramble in our supply chain management offices in the auto industry. As this variant ramps up, they're looking at potentially more shutdowns in China. The other thing that's happening here is a reevaluation or trying to de-risk or make our supply chains a lot more secure in this very uncertain environment where the supply chains have proven to be mostly strong and resilient, but some are fairly fragile. And then you have things that you can't even foresee, like another COVID shutdown in China or the start of a land war in Europe, natural disasters that happen that take critical minerals out of production for a period of time, or even when the London Metal Exchange shut down nickel trading for a couple of days early this year. There are so many different things that are happening that I think that This industry is starting to think about how do we build more resiliency into our supply chains and resiliency is coming back to a more regional competitive position.
0: That's really helpful perspective. So from an industry's perspective, now from the government's perspective, there's also a competition, right? So the automotive industry is a cutting edge industry. There are economic security benefits and perhaps even national security benefits to having a robust auto industry. Does that enter into the equation from the government's perspective?
1: Oh absolutely. And this was one of the first things that this current administration did was the 100 day report on critical supply chains and, and then the longer reports and work that they're doing on what are are not only for what's going on right now but for Ensuring a competitive future for the country in some of those advanced technologies, where the U.S. may have not been at the leading edge, so I think this has been a priority of of this administration, at least, to to look at supply chains. For I don't know about you, but when I read those hundred d reports, I'm like, we were in, involved in all of them, really.
0: Yeah, I found it to be almost remarkable the extent to which the auto industry is central to that supply chain analysis, semiconductors, for example, as well as the emerging supply chain for the raw materials and components that will go into electric vehicles. So I agree with you, which raises a question I want to come to now, which is, how does this retooling of the automotive industry actually work? Again, back to the transformation, we're shifting from an internal combustion engine automotive industrial base to an electrified automotive industrial base. How does the industry retool?
1: Well, it's tooling and retooling. We're building a lot of new plants ground up. We're gutting plants and starting over completely, gutting them to the four walls. And whenever there's an investment of this size, a new assembly plant's $2 billion, but we've seen several investments in North America that were reinvestments on the scale of two or even three billion dollars into an, an existing plant. So when you do that, you're deciding the mix of capital and labor that you're going to use to produce these vehicles. You're deciding what kinds of technologies you'll, you'll put in place, level of automation and robotics. And these brand new plants or these bottom-up retooling are often very highly automated. So that changes really what the content of the work that's going to be done in those plants will be. In some cases, where we're building out new, as like say for battery cell production, we don't have a battery cell workforce yet. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. like the retooling involves training and retooling workers, and setting what is the bargain for those jobs. Like, what are we going to pay for those jobs, and what's the quality of work? What's the quality of those jobs going to be? And that's all decided with that investment and the decision of the mix between capital and labor, like. What kind of workers do we need for
0: these plants? Yeah. So some of this transformation will be, as you said, retooling. I'm going to use that word broadly because I know tooling means something more specific in the industry as well as how some of us use it more broadly to just talk about the transformation on the industrial side. But let's use the term broadly for a second. So some of this retooling is reuse of existing facilities, significant reinvestment. Maybe some of the same people with retraining and a focus on human capital. Is there also greenfield activity going on? In other words, new facilities being built that will employ new people in new places where the auto industry might not currently be based.
1: Absolutely. Those states that are looking to have a stake in this new and growing part of the industry, absolutely, there's going to be that kind of expansion as well. And I want to point out, there is also just the fundamental part of tooling, the physical tools that have to be put into these plants. And with the level of activity that we have going on right now, each individual company or plant may have this schedule and what they want to have done and on the timeline that they want to have it been done on. But we're all going after the same resources, the same robotics companies, the same Tooling companies, the same construction firms, the same limited resources that are all being tapped to turn things over now as quickly as possible. The speed to market demands are incredible. And I'll just, if I can throw in a personal anecdote, one of my relatives has a rigging company, a millwright and rigging company, never been busier, never been busier like working on changing out machines and bringing in stuff and changing over factories and the supply base across this region of the country because of that speed to market demand and so resources like his company they're not very big and they can't do everything all at once and so i think we really do have a lot of demands on a limited pool of machinery companies tooling companies rigging companies construction companies that are going to work really hard to make those demands, but it's going to be tough.
0: Yeah. It's a great point because if you look at the auto industry broadly, it is an incredibly asset intensive industry, right? So these are plants that have millions of square foot under roof, right? And these tools that you're talking about to stamp sheet metal. I mean, the vehicle, no matter how it's powered, is still a physical thing moving through space. So it still needs a superstructure and it needs sheet metal and it needs all these things. So what you're talking about is all of the tooling and equipment and robotics and labor that goes into that is an enormous investment, but also a challenge in terms of how all that gets sequenced given the pace of this transformation.
1: Well, and our robotics and automation equipment needs chips, too. Yeah. <laughs> and there are chip supply issues even in their industries.
0: So as we're thinking about these major investments in the plants and what they look like, what is the impact of the shift on the broader manufacturing community, right? So we've talked about the assets, but what about the workers and the communities where these facilities are located. And I think about my experience at Chrysler and Kokomo, Indiana, which was all transmission plants at the time. I mean, how do we think about this transformation from a worker and a community perspective?
1: Well, that's the center of why I'm at the Fed <laughs> and what we're looking at is that what does that transformation do to workers and communities and local and regional economies? And Kokomo, Indiana is a great example. It does it's all transmissions for Stellantis in North America come out of Kokomo they did invest in an engine plant there now too and then just recently selected Kokomo for a 2.5 billion dollar investment in a battery plant that battery plant is a joint venture it's not necessarily going to be a unionized plant that will be determined later and we don't know exactly what the, the dynamics of if there's a loss of jobs In the transmission side of things, will people be able to go over and work in the battery plant? Are there sufficient jobs and will they be able to make those transitions? I think what really brings for a community like Kokomo or any host to a traditional internal combustion engine supplier or component plant is a lot of uncertainty. You mentioned earlier about many of the cars are the same. There's still a physical object moving through space with steel and seats. and things like that. A lot of things stay essentially the same. Some go away entirely, like gas tanks and exhaust systems, and you don't need to have quite as much fluid management when you don't have that much fluid running through the vehicle. And some change in really fundamental. There's new suppliers, like these joint venture battery cell plants, and that's a process industry, not really a discrete manufacturing industry like we're mostly used to. And overall, like You can find a study that says that there's going to be more workers in the electric vehicle industry, or there's going to be fewer workers, and I think anybody who tells you they know the answer to that doesn't know the answer to that question. While there may be fewer hours per vehicle in the assembly plant, there may be more work here in the U.S. and North America, as we talked about de-risking supply chain and then coming into compliance with the USMCA and other factors that might move some of those things around.
0: I want to shift now to the customer. Let's look at this from the customer's perspective. So you mentioned a little bit earlier sort of what purchasing behavior looks like, what average transaction prices are. Let's talk a little bit more about that. Prices are high right now. Why is that? And how dependent is this transformation on the customer?
1: Well, the customer has to be there. And... (laughs) There's a lot of interest right now, and we do have sort of a skewed market, I would say, at the moment. With the average vehicle transaction price around $47,000 right now, and it's almost $20,000 more average for an electric vehicle, and that is a function of the types of electric vehicles that are in the market right now. I mean, there's Teslas and Hummers and the Lightning and the Mach-E, and a lot of these are more toward the luxury end of the price range. That's gonna change over the next couple of years as more and more of the uh, more affordable or mass market has come into production. I think that we also don't have a fully robust supply chain to support the bringing the cost of batteries and the cost of the propulsion system down. I saw an analysis recently from Wells Fargo that showed the internal combustion engine cost per vehicle vehicles about 7000 and that the cost of the propulsion system in an electric vehicle was close to double that at the moment. So the thinking all along was that we could get battery costs down to parity with internal combustion engines. But the reality right now is that both are going up. The crunch on on nickel, on lithium, we have got a bunch of investment in lithium mines, but that's going to take six to eight years to come online. So does it all line up perfectly? Maybe not. We've got this sort of land grab for all these critical raw materials that are going to be needed, and they're really expensive at the moment. So per cost per kilowatt hour has been going up. And we thought, well, we can just drive the cost of internal combustion engines down because we've been making them for 100 years, and we're just going to get better and better and better. I think one thing that people aren't thinking about is there are pressures on the big suppliers in the internal combustion engine business to be on board with electrification, to be on board with low-carbon transportation, and to exit any of these legacy businesses. So... There's several technologies that we use to make internal combustion engine vehicles more efficient, like say gasoline direct injection. There's only a handful of companies that do that. If you have a couple of companies exit, which has happened recently, you've got greater concentration of market power for gasoline direct injection in the hands of just a few a few suppliers who now have better pricing power and less capacity to build that, those systems. So you could see increasing prices for components for internal combustion engines as we lose scale in that side of the business and are still ramping up the scale on the electric vehicle side. So it's a particularly inefficient time. And if you're a company that's in the business of going to continue to make vehicles that have internal combustion engine components to them, hybrids or just straight up ICE engines, you're gonna have fewer and fewer suppliers to rely on. And you're going to need to have really tight relationships and partnerships to continue to invest together through the life of those vehicles that are going to require an internal combustion engine for the foreseeable future.
0: Hmm. So as we wrap up here, let's sort of broaden to the global view and finish with that. Your focus is in the Midwest and in the U.S., but perhaps you can offer a view about how you think the U.S. is Uh, stacking up against other countries with regard to this automotive manufacturing transition? And what do we need to be doing from a U.S. perspective to maintain competitiveness?
1: I think we're behind. In EVs, absolutely, we're behind. And China is probably far out in the lead amongst all other nations or regions of the world. Where we celebrate having a new gigaplant coming in to a state or a region here in the U.S., there are people sitting in China who can see five or six gigaplants from their office. Like there's so much production of battery electric vehicles and all of the parts and components. Their supply chains are much more developed than ours. South Korea also fairly developed, and I think a little bit in the lead. I think we're pretty neck and neck with Europe. Certainly the European consumer and the market is a little bit further along than the U.S. consumer. But there's struggles, I think, in in getting production all lined up and all the models out on the same kind of time frame that we're on. I think Japan is sort of on a different path. Japan has bet really big on... The Japanese producers have bet really big on hybrids and this shift really strong to battery and plug-in. They may be playing a little bit of catch-up, but they also have big investments in advanced battery technologies like solid state and in fuel cell. We've been in fuel cell for quite some time and the backing of the Japanese government. So I think we're behind China and South Korea, neck and neck with Europe, and Japan is really sort of, I see us on a different path. What we need to do, really attacking that affordability issue and bringing costs down you can bring costs down a lot of ways many people just go straight to well the consumer purchase incentives that brings costs down yes it does but supporting fundamental R&D and manufacturing investments that can get the cost of producing the product in the first place down so that you don't have to then take the discount off the top at the, at the dealer getting better more energy dense more resource efficient batteries and just working really hard to get the the fundamental cost structure straightened out so that we don't have that big gap between the legacy propulsion systems and the new electrified powertrains. That will really help us get on board to a more electrified, low-carbon transportation future.
0: Well, Kristen, thank you so much for being on The Overtake. It's been a fascinating conversation, and I really appreciate your taking the time to be here. Well, thank you for having me. for everyone else, thanks for joining us. Remember to like and follow the Alliance for Automotive Innovation on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, and subscribe to The Overtake wherever podcasts can be found. Until next time, thanks.